hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone, if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. Today we have a special guest joining us. Our author who submitted is joining us for this episode so that we can chat with her and unpack everything. But before we introduce her and dive in, I just want to remind you that if you do want to submit to Books with Hooks, you can go to theshitaboutwriting.com. There's a Books with Hooks tab and you can submit there. We seem to be getting a lot of emails from people saying, here is my letter and here is my submission. Please give me feedback, which is unfortunately not how that works. So please make sure that you are submitting at the right place to be considered. Right. So joining us today is Nicole Barton. Nicole, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. And I also wanted to say thank you for all the things that you provide to the writing community, like the resources. I think I've done them all. I've done the call in for a question. I've done the comp line. This is my second time submitting to book with, with Huck. I just, it's so invaluable, all the resources that you provide. It's great. Thank you. Oh, thank you for that. That's absolutely lovely, lovely feedback. And we love having you on because the problem with our normal sessions is that we just don't have the author with us so that we can ask some questions and then brainstorm with them. And that's Cece's favorite part is bouncing ideas off of people and brainstorming. So it's wonderful to have you on. For our listeners, you will have noticed that we now are either doing just one query whereby the author joins us or two when the author isn't with us. And the reason for that is because we really want to get into more nitty gritty. And when we were doing three queries, we were barely touching the surface. So this will mean that we're a little bit behind in terms of submissions because we're only doing two a week rather than three, but we're hoping that you're going to get more out of them. Okay, so to kick us off, Nicole, will you please read us your query letter? I would love to. Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca. I'm back for more. <laughs> you critiqued an earlier query letter of mine and your advice was so helpful. I love your insight on my latest project. I'm seeking representation for my 70,000 word rom-com, A Hollywood Romance in Italy. It contains all the fake dating fun and celebrity glamour of Ava Wilder's How to Fake It in Hollywood, 
combined with all the fun escapist vibes and forced proximity of Josie Silver's One Night on the Island. What if there were an unreleased Audrey Hepburn film? Emily Taylor had heard rumors of such a film's existence, but didn't believe it until she received a call from Angela Camillo, the woman currently in possession of the film. Emily, an executive producer at a struggling streaming service, was sent to Italy to whip into shape a wayward production and its unruly star, Joshua Abbott. After picking up Joshua from a bar, she got the call. If she wanted to discuss the mythical, unreleased Audrey film, she needed to meet Angela at her villa now. But with no time to drop Joshua off, they both go speak to Angela about the unreleased film. Angela's late father directed the film, and according to him, it is the greatest love story ever told. Angela says the world today doesn't deserve their story because love like that doesn't exist anymore. Always click on her feet. Emily points at Joshua, the troublemaking actor she just met, and says true love does exist. Her and Joshua are living proof. The deal is struck. If Joshua and Emily can convince Angela and her friends that their love is true, then Emily can have the rights to air the never-before-seen Audrey film. With the rights to the film, not only could Emily save the streaming site she works for from financial ruin, but her boss would finally greenlight the art house movie Emily really wants to make. Can Emily and Joshua pretend to be in love for a week at a romantic villa in Tuscany without killing each other or falling in love themselves? Told in dual POV from Emily and Joshua's perspective, a Hollywood romance in Italy is a lighthearted, whimsical rom-com filled with all the charm of an old Hollywood film. When I'm not writing or listening to your podcast, I'm either working at an elementary school library, painting with my three-year-old, watching movies with my husband, or reading. I've included the first five pages. Please let me know if you'd like to read the full manuscript. Thank you, uh, Nicole. And I included my website link. (laughs) Right. Thanks so much for that, Nicole. And what I absolutely love is that both of your comps are authors who we've had on the show and who we've interviewed. So that's pretty damn cool. Okay. So we're going to first start with Carly and we'll ask for Carly's feedback. And then we're going to hand it across to Cece. Carly, what did you think? All right. So I think we're coming in around 436 words is where I counted it. So I think on the long-ish side, but there's a lot of there's a lot of meaty stuff here. So yeah, let's get into it. So for some reason, I don't know, I just get obsessed with a couple things on this podcast and one of them is titles. So titles. So this one is so like SEO friendly. Like I could just imagine somebody being like, you know, Googling or on Amazon or wherever they buy their books looking for a Hollywood romance in Italy. And you're just like, here's my Hollywood romance in Italy, right? I just think it's so on the nose that it like delivers from that SEO perspective, which for marketing is great. But in terms of like a title, is it too on the nose? Because your comps are a little bit more, not whimsical, maybe isn't the right word, but there's maybe a bit more of a play on words. So I would maybe play around with our title ideas. And obviously I'll go through my notes and and you can kind of pop in at the end and we can kind of chat if you have any ideas as well. But I just wanted to start with that. So the next thing is another thing I get obsessed with on this podcast is how many times we introduce characters and how we introduce characters. So you have three characters and you have their full names. So we also have Audrey Hepburn. So we have like Audrey Hepburn, next line, Emily Taylor, next line, Angela Camillo, few lines later, Joshua Abbott. It's a lot of names. So I don't know. I'm kind of like, "Ah, do we need all of their names? Do we need last names? Sometimes you can just say, in this case, it's hard, right? Because obviously we need Audrey's name. We need our main character's name. And then you have... Angela Camillo, the woman in possession of the film. Like sometimes you could just say like, there's this mysterious woman in charge of the film. Do you know what I'm trying to say? To like, just take the weight off of our mental load as a as a reader to just not make us do that mental energy. Does that make sense? So you could just keep that like, not vague, you know, a, a mysterious woman is interested. Who is this mysterious woman who has the film? So some, like, that would be an example of a way that you could just kind of like, again, deflect that mental energy there. My next question was a little, maybe a plausibility question in terms of the legal stuff. Would that belong to her estate, you know, or obviously, you know, you mentioned that, you know, the director has it. So I don't know anything really about the legal entity of old films and anything like that. I I don't know if it's worth mentioning. Maybe you thought of it, but I just kind of flagged that because I was like, oh, okay, something, something that came up for me. And then why wasn't it released? I'm wondering if there's like, again, and you probably get into this in the book, but what is keeping things from happening? I always, whenever I'm looking at a rom-com or a romance, because a romance can be these two met, they fell in love, the end. Or a romance can be an 80,000 word novel of like, this happens and this happens and this happens. You know what I mean? Like this drama of like, oh, and then this, these two major events are keeping them apart. You know, like the drama of the romance in the rom-com. Here, I really want to know what is keeping 
them from what has kept them I guess from releasing the film and then coming back to the romantic element of it so these two kind of like fall into each other's world can they pretend to fall in love for a week I was kind of wondering, you know, obviously we can get into the pages later, but like, why didn't they like each other to begin with? Obviously she has this grudge against him being like, maybe he's not hard work. You know, why is he this troublemaking actor? She'll have some ideas about why he is problematic, but we don't really have a reason to keep them apart. And again, a romance can be two lines. These two met, they fell in love, or it can be a novel, right? And I think that's where I'm curious about what is keeping these two from enjoying each other. Why do they hate each other? What's in it for him, I guess? I don't know. There's just a lot of that, like, intricacies of the why here that I really wanted to understand because it's so fun it's like a poppy lighthearted affair right like I don't know I I really I enjoy the idea of it I just really want to make sure we're not having any plot holes the other thing is because this query is over 400 words we need to do some reimagining of this query letter a little bit because if I have this many questions about plot holes and it's already 436 words are we focusing on the right things you know and again this is why obviously we love having authors on the podcast CC you know, we can all jump in and, and kind of think about, is this the right way to execute the pitch for, for this concept if we still have plot holes, potential plot holes after 430-ish words? So those are kind of my high-level notes. Yeah, and uh, I'll maybe turn it over to Cece and then Nicole will have you jump in. We'll go from there. Thanks. I love that you went first because you mentioned, I think, three out of the four things I wanted to say. So that was awesome. I wanted to also talk about the title. I wondered if even just making it Tuscany as opposed to Italy would already make it a little bit more specific. But I love the idea of a play on words, something playful and rom-commy. I also really like the comment about the rights just because I was like, why would this woman hold the rights to the film? And that's not something that needs to be clarified in the query letter, in my opinion. It's just something that would be a hangup for the pages if it isn't properly explained in a way that's super plausible and doesn't feel info dumpy. So this is really just me thinking like ahead. I did not think about why they hadn't released the film. I had already a whole bunch of ideas in my head, but it wasn't a hangup for me. So that was interesting to hear as well. I wonder in terms of the first paragraph. So I love that you start with, what if there was an unreleased Audrey Hepburn film, right? And then you go into Emily Taylor had learned about the rumors of this, but didn't believe it until she got the call. And then who was Emily? We go back in time to get set up on who was Emily. Emily is an executive producer and she's struggling with this actor, Joshua. And then we go back to the present to like, they're at a bar when she gets the call about the film. And that hopping for me felt jarring. I would reframe that whole paragraph to just go in chronological order. If you're thinking to yourself, oh, that means I don't get to have that fun question about the unreleased film. That's not true. You can still keep the fun question. It's isolated right now above the other paragraph. So you don't have to worry about that at all. I think that that alone would make this so much tighter and it would keep me from going, wait, now we're going back and then we're coming, you know, and it might seem small, but you know how many query letters we get, right? So it's, it's a really fun premise. I really liked that you are clear that this is a fun escapist rom-com, right? So I also had questions like, why can't they fall in love? What are the stakes? And I kept thinking to myself, is it because, I don't know, her boss got in trouble for dating an actor, you know, perhaps in a more traditional boss is a guy, actor is a woman, and she doesn't want to do the same thing. I don't, I don't know. I kept thinking about all these things, like what, what would be the cause of her resistance? Because if you want to have chemistry on the page, one thing I've noticed is resistance goes a long way. Resistance does not mean lack of consent. They're two completely different things. For all listeners out there, please do not think that I'm suggesting that. But an internal resistance of like, oh, I can't, that really ups the temptation, which ups the chemistry too. So that was another question I had for you. So now, now we're all just excited to hear from you. Thank you so much, Cece. Before we hand across to Nicole, yeah, I did want to mention that that was my one thing in the query letter is that, you know, we had that Emily had heard rumors of a film's existence. After picking Joshua up from the bar, she got the call. She needed to meet Angela de Villa. So all of that is like in the past tense. And then it says they both go to speak to Angela. So my question was, why is that part of the query letter in past tense? Is that backstory that doesn't happen on the page that you're just giving us for context? So certainly I think reframing that in the present tense to fit the rest of it will definitely help clear up that confusion. 
decision. Okay, we're now handing across to Nicole. We've asked a lot of questions, Nicole. Now's your chance to answer them and you get to ask us questions as well. That is a lot of really great feedback. (laughs) And it's going to take me longer than this podcast to process it. Yes, it's a great suggestion. It's definitely bouncing around in time. And the tense is, is because my brain was like, I'm going to start the query letter from this point. And I don't know why I decided that, but you do see, like she gets the call on the page that happens in the pages. So changing the tense so that it was all consistent would be great. And that might also be helped by changing the order of it so that it doesn't hop around in time. Yeah, I think it was tricky because I don't know, it's already a long query letter. And I wanted to make sure that the premise was set up. So I didn't know how much to get into like, so rom-com so like their wounds and why they don't want why their resistance towards love in general and why their resistance towards each other it's kind of a little bit like enemies to lovers grumpy sunshine but it's not super enemies to lovers like the spanish love deception it's not like from the get-go they just kind of don't like each other and they don't get along very well but they have that like kind of magnetic pull towards each other at the same time Okay, so a question I have there. So that's internal forces that are keeping them from falling in love. So Carly and Cece speak a lot about external forces. Can you guys just hop in there and just weigh in there? Yes. So that is kind of what I was getting at with my note about what are the roadblocks. So the, the roadblock really is her trying to get what she wants, which is she wants this film. But this is what I'm struggling with, with being a long query letter. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how to suggest that. This is why I think we have to honestly think you have to start over, even though it's not a bad query letter. It's just like, it's not getting at the heart of it, which is what is keeping these two people apart physically in terms of roadblocks. For example, if they have to show that they're in love, they need to go on dates or they have to like create moments for bonding. And then there's the like, you know, all and again, all of that can probably happen in your book. But I think we do need to figure out that spark of what are the things getting in the way? Example, like, I mean, I'm totally totally just making this up but like obviously as I said they need to go on dates so what if like they try to go on a date and stage this like paparazzi thing but then I don't know something happens and there's a big storm and then the paparazzi can't show up because of the storm but like they still have their little like sweet moment in the cafe do you know what I'm trying to say it's like how do we use external weather paparazzi these external things coming into this world landing on them keeping them apart when realistically in today's day and age everybody is a cell phone click away you know from being able to communicate with each other so that that's something i think about are there those kind of plot points in the story nicole that you can tell us about now that perhaps we can brainstorm how to include them in the query letter they definitely go on dates and it's pretty like performative because they're invited to this villa for angela's like birthday week of fun with her friends, which are also like members of Hollywood in different factions. So that really is one of the reasons Joshua is excited about it, because one of them is a a A-list director that like wins a lot of Oscars. And he's like, I want to win an Oscar. I make all these like vampire glittery movies and I want to win an Oscar (laughs) and do something a little different with my career. So that's like one of the reasons that kind of pulls him in and gets him on board. But like the forces keeping them apart really are more internal. Yes. Cece? I am thinking more big picture when it comes to the forces keeping them apart. And I don't want to make your story into something that it's not. But I'm wondering if you've played around with like just upping stakes more. Her boss is the kind of guy who does not promote women if they are in a relationship. You know, he thinks that women in relationships are distracted. This is the kind of guy he is. And so she's a career woman. Mm -hmm. She's like in her head thinking, that's mean to other women, but I have no problem doing that because that's just me. So then she has to choose in her head. She has to choose, right? And when he finds out that she's dating Joshua, he freaks out, but she goes, no, no, this is fake. This is so we can get the movie. I am that career woman you've always wanted me to be. But then she starts having feelings for him. And that becomes messy because if she is actually falling for him, normally that would be fine because they're two hot, available, single people. But she is worried she'll get fired from the company she's trying to save. So then that's messy. Like that's already an external force. And again, just an example. It obviously won't fit your story because there's no way I'm that lucky. But something that is going to keep them apart, that's not just like the micro plot points that Carly mentioned, super important for the actual scenes. 
but what about big picture? You know, like I am reading this and I literally wrote in my notebook, why can't they fall in love? Presumably these are two hot single people who clearly are into each other. And so it's really cute, but then like dot, dot, dot. And it might be an issue of like, CC just likes high stakes stories. So then you ignore my notes if that is the case, but maybe it's not. Yeah, I was going to say, and when it comes to him, has he maybe been tied to somebody else in the press who says that this is who he's dating and now she didn't know about that and now she's told everyone that they're dating and whoever this person is, is, you know, is going to be an obstacle, etc. So, So those are the kind of external forces we're talking about beyond, you know, that she doesn't want to get married and she doesn't want to fall in love and those kinds of things. Right. And the other yeah, person I- is a hot movie star. Like the person he's dating is a hot movie star. So she's super jealous. Like, I love that. That's great. Yes. His ex does show up and she is a hot movie star, but it does happen later in the book. And I can definitely see, I think everybody loves high stakes reading because that's why we're reading, right? (laughs) We don't want to like, and I, I totally get now that you all are saying it, that they could just change their mind at any point. The book is done. So external forces would definitely up those stakes. Now I have a lot to think about. You know what you may be, Nicole? I see this a lot. You may be a very nice person, capital V, capital N. You're making the obstacle an X. That way it's not wrong. Like you're making sure that, you know, everything's very above board and that's super sweet and adorable and lovely. But I just think you have to up the messiness. And just move that forward. You know, it's somebody Mm -hmm. that he has kind of been dating she is this hot whatever. It's going to get in the way. It's going to be a problem. But yeah, move move that up forward. Don't have it happening so much later in the novel. Have it be messy from the very beginning. Carly, anything else you wanted to add there? No, this just, just reminds me about how much I love having the author on so we can, you know, chat and brainstorm. So I just love it. Do you have any other questions for us, Nicole, or anything else you wanted to add? I know we're throwing a lot at you and it's a lot to process in one go. Yeah, I don't think I have any other questions. I just have to rethink some things. But it really is like, it's great. It's like sparklers moment, you know, where it's like, oh, I need more conflict. <laughs> I need more external conflict. Sparklers and fireworks. It's like, we, yeah. need the, we need the fireworks and the bangs happening. All right. So will you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages? And then we'll go to Cece for her to kick off the discussion. Yes. So it kind of starts with, I guess, a POV stamp. It's not really a timestamp, but it says Emily to let you know like which character you're in. And she is on a plane and she is nervous because her rental car reservation isn't set and because she's afraid of heights. So there's two things like the plan not set and the heights is kind of getting to her. She tries to call her assistant, but her seatmate informs her that she can't be on the phone because the plane hasn't landed. And through conversation and a mix of interiority, we find out that she's an executive producer at a struggling streaming service. And there's a movie she wants to make that she's having a hard time with her boss getting made. And we find out that she's single and more of a casual dating type person. She gets an email from her assistant on her phone that there's a rental car shortage. So there's not one for her, but someone from the set, a PA is going to come pick her up. And then she, we go to Vegas, play with her, and the PA picks her up. Oh, and then she wants to go right to set, and she finds out they're not shooting. Awesome. Thank you, Nicole. Okay, Cece, we're handing it across to you now. I guess I want to zoom in first and talk about details, and then we'll zoom out. So zooming in, I noticed repetition in the first paragraph that felt distracting to me. You have her looking out the window in the first sentence, and then in the last sentence, you have her looking away from the window. Of course, these are two very different things, looking out and looking away, but I just don't think you need them motion by motion. To me, it's a sign of possible overwriting, and I highlighted other moments that you might be doing that for you to consider tightening if if you feel like it resonates with you. Also, Toby's name is mentioned in an action beat before he introduces himself, so before she knows his name is Toby, which I'm sure is just like it's something that you probably edited, you probably like moved dialogue around. But it's just something to keep in mind. She doesn't know who Toby is yet. So you can't know that Toby is the one doing the the moving. So zooming out a little bit more to look at like mid-sized stuff. There was a paragraph that I felt was a little info dumping. It's the paragraph that starts with, I did know she had told me about 10 times since asking me what I did as we were taking off. And then we learned that she works as an executive producer at the streamer. We learned that she thinks it's a good gig but that, you know, there are issues. Here are the good things about this streamer. Here are the bad things. And 
you are doing it in scene. It's not like it's all telling, you know, all untethered. But question is, do we need all that detail right up front? It just feels like stuff that we don't have to know in the first pages when the real estate is even more valuable. So it's not like when I say it's info dumpy, I'm not saying like amateur info dumpy. I'm saying, do we need this in the beginning? I don't think we do. Like, let's let's learn about this later. Let's maybe wonder what she does without so much specificity in the beginning. Like we can learn that she's in the film and TV industry without knowing exactly what her role is. Or maybe we can know about the role, but maybe not all the pros and cons. I am worried that she might be coming across as... It's just not very like reading the room, not very aware. She gives this woman all her stuff and she doesn't even think that it might be unkind and she doesn't thank the woman or I get that she's nervous about heights. So maybe that's the intention, but I didn't feel her interiority with any vulnerability, which to me is always like, I don't know if I'm going to want to spend time with someone who's not vulnerable in some way. I don't mean her actions. I do mean her interiority. And now like zooming out to look at like big, big picture stuff. I am not sure that you're starting in the right place. We're getting a lot of context. Like this is a great place to start if the idea is to deliver context, but not so much curiosity seeds, not so much active emotions. You know, I really wanted fear and desire conveyed through surprise. And I know that like she is afraid of heights, but she'll be fine. The plane lands, you know, she's on the ground in, in two seconds. So it felt a little on the safe side, not bad, just safe. And again, this may be a problem of Cece just wants things to be too high stakes. It may be a matter of adding more layers to this, not more words, just layers. You know, writing is all about compressing. If you can do, if one sentence can do three things, then you're doing a great job as opposed to three sentences doing three things. Or it might be a matter of choosing a different starting point. So one of the things that I'm really curious to hear when we hand it off to you later on is if you've played around with a different starting point. Like, has this novel ever had a different beginning? If so, which one? I'm really curious about that. And I'm really glad you're here to talk to us about it. Thank you, Cece. Before we hand across to Carly, I do just want to give Nicole kudos in terms of she's written first-person point of view, and it's difficult to describe what a character looks like and their age when it's first-person, because you don't want a first-person character going, this is how old I am, this is what my hair color is, etc. So I want to give you two ways in which Nicole did this really organically that worked phenomenally well. So the, the woman that she's sitting next to, she hands her everything. It said she took everything with a gobsmacked expression, like I just asked her to hold a baby. She'd probably be more pleased if I'd asked her to hold an actual baby. Well, sorry, lady, at 35 with no man, you've got the wrong woman. So that's a great way of telling us how old she is and that she's single without it reading as I am this old and I am this single, etc. And there was another one here that gives us her a description of her without the character telling us. So when somebody arrives to pick her up from the airport, this man immediately knows it's her and she asks how he knew it was her. How did you know who I was? They told me to look for a petite blonde woman glued to her phone. So that's a great way to use other characters to position, you know, these kinds of details in your reader's mind. So really well done with that, Nicole. Okay, so Carly, I'm handing across to you now. Those were also the things that I thought were done really well. I had highlighted the handing, you know, the stranger, the documents, the baby stuff. Like I, I really, I really liked that as well. Okay, I'm going to start. I think I focused a bit my notes a bit more on like the first half of the sample. So I'm going to kind of deep dive into this. So I highlighted in the first paragraph, he used the word window three times. I know CC kind of already mentioned this, but it's definitely a lot. You also use the turn of phrase, my stomach twisted into knots. It's just something we've heard before. So I always highlight that. And just when I'm talking to a client, so for example, when a client sends me something where it's like, it's a turn of phrase, we've all heard a million times. What I always say back to them is, what is the way that Nicole would write this? Do you know what I'm trying to say? Like, we've all heard this, but like, what is the most Nicole way to say that turn of phrase and figure out that, right? Because it's like, I want your voice, even if it is her stomach twisting into knots. Again, the turn of phrase, the colloquialism we've heard a million times. What's the most Nicole way that you can say that? And so that's what I always try to remind people of, because I think that's really important. Because when first drafts are being written, obviously keeping those like common turns of phrases in there is common right because you're like oh I have this idea about how the character feels I'm going to use a turn of phrase we just have to go back every time it's like again a line we've heard before a phrase we've heard before a colloquialism if you're going to use that as a placeholder totally fine just again remember to go back and say what's the most Nicole way that I can say that yeah and besides what's the most Nicole way of saying that what is the most 
Emily way of saying that because remember you're writing this in the first person so think of Emily's perspective in her life how would she phrase something and the reason I'm thinking about this is I'm currently reading the most incredible book to interview the author soon on the podcast David Joy for those of you who have requested more Appalachian authors his book those we thought we knew and when I do this episode I'm actually going to read out parts where he describes things in the character's voice in a way that only that character would describe it. It talks about their life experience, their socioeconomic standing, etc, etc. So for all of our listeners, not just Nicole, this is something that you really need to, to pay attention to. And that's an excellent book. So listen out for that episode to hear that. Okay, Carly, carry on. All right. Yeah, I really, I really like the interaction between these two strangers, but I actually had a lot of questions. One of the things I, again, another thing I obsess about on this podcast is money, socioeconomic status, power struggle, all this stuff. So to me, an executive at a film company would be flying first class. There's no doubt in my mind that she would be flying first class. Why is she not flying first class here? That's interesting to me. Okay, if she is an executive not flying first class, is that because the company's not doing very well and she knows the company's not doing very well? So then they demoted her from she was supposed to fly first class and now she's flying commercial. That's super interesting to me. That's a tidbit of information that I think I was focused on. And another thing, right? So say if she's of this certain socioeconomic status because she works in film and TV and, you know, she's an executive. Say she did get bumped down. So she, she normally always flies first class. They didn't have the funds this quarter. They bumped her down to commercial. Would she think, oh, I'm going to spend my own money. I'm going to use my own airline points to bump me back up to first. Like this power struggle about like her place in her company within, you know, society, within culture. Like, I think it's very sweet that she's like, so every woman with this seatmate of hers, but people who are used to living in a certain socioeconomic status level have certain expectations about the type of life they're going to live and the type of job they're going to have and the type of privileges that their job is going to provide them so that's why I think that would be that would be something interesting that I would be focusing on again and it's just a way to highlight how her company is doing to focus on that I also thought it was really interesting that you described her suitcase in her phone. So her phone is lavender. You also said she used pastel little flags for her notebook. She has a vanilla and pink Michael Kors wheelie suitcase. She seems like somebody that is very like bubbly and bright and like maximalist colors or just like fun. Like I just think it really it that those color elements I really liked because I thought it really added to the kind of sense of poppiness about the book and kind of like brightness. And I just, I thought the, the those choices were really interesting. Okay, so Cece said that potentially we might not be starting in the right place. I think yes and no. You know, I think there is always a potential for a book to be starting in a different place. Like I never come into a project and I'm like, it has to start this way. Or like, this is definitely the wrong way. I'm always like, there are so many, you know, as Bianca always says, right? There's so many like entry points into the building in terms of the the type of story that you're trying to tell. I think this scene has a lot of really good flow. There's a mix between the sense of containment in the sense of like, we cannot get into this airplane. Therefore, we are in this situation. It is a relatively familiar situation. I think 99.9% of, you know, adults have been on an airplane. So like we understand there's a familiarity with it. There's also a bit of escapism. It's like, who wouldn't want to get on a plane and go to Italy right about now? So I love that element of it. We were also, we also knew that she was heading into a situation that was going to be out of control. And I thought that was really interesting because we're like moving with her through space and time to be like, something's going to happen when she lands. So I don't necessarily think we're starting in the wrong place. Do I think we could be starting in a better place? I think that conversation is always up for discussion. Thank you, Carly. Maybe it's just a case of that layering that Cece was talking about to elevate it so we make sure it is the right place. So Nicole, let's talk about circling the building. Were there other entry points that you've considered or is this the entry point you had and, and you haven't really considered anything else? I have considered others, but I haven't written others because I was pretty attached to this idea of her like kind of hurtling through space towards an uncertain future and I liked that all she had to comfort her was her phone because that's the life she set up for her so she's like squeezing her phone like you would squeeze someone's hand that you love but she's got her phone so I was really attached to that idea and then like showing it towards the end kind of the difference and how far she's come but 
I have thought recently that maybe it's not the right place. I've had really mixed reviews with my beta readers on whether she's very likable in this scene, kind of like Cece said, she's not vulnerable enough in the scene. And I was trying to get across the grumpy to to the sunshine, right? Which is, a, it's tricky for me to do, I'm not grumpy. <laughs> I'm not a grumpy person. And I'm very much like, if you're going to talk to me, I'm going to smile and I'm going to be polite, even if you're on a plane with me for eight hours. And I wanted her to not be that way. And it's tricky to do that in a way where you are still conveying that she's a vulnerable person, you know, worth going on this journey with. So I'm still working on that. Just on that, I want to give you some suggestions there because I must be honest, I really did not like Emily. And I struggle with that because I'm like, why do we need to like female characters? This is BS, people. But here's the thing. You can have her being grumpy in certain aspects but then very kind in others. So for example, she could be grumpy with somebody at work who's annoying her, but then very kind to this woman who's sitting next to her because this woman is old. She's referred to as Miss Marple. And Emily has to repeat things quite a few times to her, which makes me think this woman might be grappling with senility, for example. But Emily's quite mean to her. And if Emily were mean to somebody else, like a jerk on the plane who grabs the stewardess's butt or something, then we see the grumpiness used in a way that we like, go Emily, but then we see her being kind to her seatmates. So there's that juxtaposition. There's also an opportunity where a line that we loved, we get told that she watched movies too old for her at too young an age because she was precocious and she had cable. Perhaps if there's a backstory there that gets hinted at, maybe she had an unhappy childhood and she used movies as a form of escape so that she didn't have to think about her parents' divorce or whatever was happening there, then we get another level of vulnerability and we get a curiosity seed about her characterization. So I definitely think there's ways to do grumpy in a way that doesn't make us immediately go, I don't want to spend 300 and whatever pages with this character. Carly? Just for the the listeners, I just wanted to remind everybody, like, this is why a lot of times unlikable characters or grumpy characters are given something like a pet, you right? You think about lessons in chemistry, right? How she, she has her dog. And so she's like grumpy with everybody else. Not necessarily grumpy, but like she could potentially come off as unlikable to other people. But, you know, she has the dog, right? And so a lot of times, like, there's just something that a character is given, again, that like shows that flip side. And pets are one of the obvious examples for any listeners out there. Yeah, something, for example, that struck me this weekend, I flew back from Alberta, there was this man sitting in front of me, and he appeared in a certain way that you just expected him to be a grumpy dude. And he was sitting next to me, and I was like, oh, God, this is going to be great. And a baby's head popped up in front of us, and the baby was pulling faces and sort of crying. And I would have expected this guy to be annoyed about the baby being loud or whatever and he suddenly started blowing raspberries at this baby and pulling the funniest faces that made the baby laugh that put the mother at ease and then he went back to being grumpy the rest of the time but there was just that one thing he did that was just so interesting to me and that made him more likable in that moment so are there things that you can sort of do there to adapt that yeah in a later draft than this I kind of tried to do the save the cat where she, first of all, I gave more context for why she was so kind of like annoyed and abrasive with her seatmate and why she wasn't in first class because she had been bumped and like flights had been delayed. And so she would have remembered her name if this was on the first leg of the flight, but we're on leg three and she hadn't slept the whole time. And I tried to make her a little less, like I pulled back a little bit on the harshness with her. And she also at the biggest claim, she helps the woman get her bag that's too heavy for her and then curses herself for doing it because she misses her bag and has to run after the turnstile because she doesn't want to wait but I'm hoping that solves some things I've been looking a lot at book lovers by Emily Henry because she is very grumpy but she is so lovely with her sister and her sister's right there from the get so that you're like on her side but it's it's such a balance when you make the female the grumpy one trying to figure out how to do it, but I'm still working on it. I've also thought of starting later. I don't know. I've I've thought of starting more closer to the meet where she's just like storming in to the bar to go grab Joshua and drag him back to set by his ear. But I'm just not sure. (laughs) It's so tricky trying to find where to start. Have you already written that scene? Yes. Yeah. So maybe, you know, in terms of your beta readers, it's worth 
taking that scene, revising it as an opener. So this is our first time we see Emily. It's the first time we see him. And, you know, re revise that and say to them, what do you think of this compared to the original one? You know, that's what I do with my beta readers. I'm like, do you think this works? What did you like about this? What didn't you like about this? How can I sort of combine those different elements? So I definitely think that's an exercise that's, you know, worth, worth doing. Mm -hmm. All right. Was there anything else, Nicole, that you wanted to ask us? Like, I honestly feel that when it comes to that grumpy sunshine, we really don't even need all that context. We don't need to know that she's missed all these flights. Maybe she snaps at the woman next to her and then just in her mind goes, oh, Emily, get it together. This poor woman doesn't deserve your wrath. It should be directed at so-and-so. If, if we just see some self-awareness, I think that'll right. go a long way because she's kind of mean and nasty, but there's zero self-awareness about that. And even if she just turns to the woman and goes, I'm sorry, I'm having a bad day. I've missed three flights and I'm tired. Boom. You know, there's a self-awareness there. She apologizes and we immediately, you know, see a bit of vulnerability and self-awareness, which I think will go a long way as well. Yeah. Okay, Nicole, were there any other questions that you had for us about this or about anything else? I don't think so. It's a lot to process and take in. It's a lot of really great feedback, and I really appreciate all of it. I just love all of your level of investment in these people I made up. <laughs> it's wonderful. Yeah, this is why we sit in like, what's happening with her? Why is she like this? Because we care. You've made us care, and that's already a really good thing. Like Cece says, if we don't care, we're not going to ask all these questions, and we're not going to be like, how can we reposition this? All right, Nicole, thank you so, so much for joining us for our Kofi supporters, Carly, Cece, and myself will be posting notes to Kofi where we break down a lot more than what we get to chat about on the show. So head over there and you can look at all of those. Right, let's go to today's guest. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. 
And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Today's guest is a freelance writer. Her work has appeared in Today's Parent, Parents Canada, Savvy Mom, Romper, Scary Mommy, Money Sense, Broadview Magazine, and more. She lives in Burlington, Ontario, with her husband and two kids. It's my pleasure to welcome Erin Pepler. Erin, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's wonderful to, to have you on with us. Erin and I have met a few times in real life. There's this awesome thing that happens in Toronto, which is that a whole group of women writers get together with emerging writers and all sort of offer support to each other, set up by someone called Lydia Laceby. And it's just awesome. And Erin and I got to meet there. And so it's wonderful to get to chat with Erin. We are talking today about her collection of essays called Send Me Into the Woods Alone, Essays on Motherhood. And I'm especially excited to chat to Erin because essays is not something that we've covered a lot of on the show. Now, for those of you who are novelists and are going, oh, I don't need to listen to this, that is nonsense. Because when you are having to promote your book, the one thing that the publicist is going to ask you is to write essays that they can place in all different magazines and newspapers that will help you promote that book. So writing essays is something that every writer has to be able to do in order to promote their work. Now, before we dive in with Erin, it goes without saying that we mark every single episode of the podcast as having explicit content. We say it's for an adult audience, but we're aware that some of you listen to this in the car with your kids. I know this because I've heard back from some of you that your children will ask, is this the podcast with the lady with the funny accent who cusses a lot? So yes, kiddies, that is me. But I just want to remind you again to take that content warning to heart. We're talking today about, we have an essay on giving birth. I mean, I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. There's other things we've spoken about on the show that are much more explicit, but I do just want to give you that warning. So now, Erin, before we discuss this amazing, amazing collection, to give our listeners a sample of what is in this essay collection, could you kick us off with just reading us the first page from the second essay in the collection? It is called A Million Hands in One Vagina. Here we go. <laughs> Thank you. There is no easy way to tell a medical student that she's stabbing you from inside your vagina. It's a delicate subject, so to speak, and it's particularly hard when the medical student is a young, nervous woman who is trying her best to see if you're dilated while her supervisor, your borderline elderly male obstetrician, looks on. She's trying. He's waiting. You feel something sharp repeatedly jabbing your birth canal and hold your breath, trying to spare her the humiliation of knowing she's hurt you. Is she wearing fake nails or maybe a ring? If so, that's a really prominent gemstone. Not smooth like an opal, but maybe a statement piece, modern and jagged. Whatever it is, you're sure it's breaking through her thin latex glove and will soon slice your insides. Oof. Checks like this are quick, you remind yourself, and it will be over soon. She pokes around, hesitantly asserts that you're not dilated at all yet, and removes her gloved hand from your lady garden. Finally, you breathe deeply and relax. Your doctor then throws on gloves and checks you again, of course, to see if the student was right. This time it doesn't hurt. Not that it's pleasant to have an old man's hand up in your box, but his fingers are free of jabby objects and his approach far more confident and efficient. In and out, yep, not dilated. Well done, intern. They thank you for consenting to the additional check. That's how doctors learn, of course. You smile and nod, no problem. Another prenatal appointment on the books. Oh, vaginas. Many people won't even say the correct name for that body part out loud, and then one day you find yourself in a dark ultrasound room wondering how a fancy medical dildo is the only way to look for an early fetal heartbeat. That, my friends, is what I was thinking about when I was told there was a baby in me. 
That is so freaking hilarious, Erin. I actually snorted out coffee when I was reading some of these parts. For our listeners, there's another quick part that I want to read to you. It's from the same essay a bit later. My hospital neighbor, a stronger woman than I, who had chosen not to take the epidural when offered, let out a steady stream of long guttural moans. It sounded like a bear had been shot and left to die slowly in the woods, or two inebriated gorillas attempting to make love in the echoing mountains. The sound vibrated through the thin hospital walls and continued for hours, worsening as the night went on. I turned up the volume in my headphones and hoped her baby would come soon. Being numb from the ribs down was pleasant and also made the parade of hands inside my vagina over the next few hours easier to tolerate. Oh, hey, person I've never seen before, but who is apparently the doctor in charge right now. You want to check my service? Go for it. Let me know what's up. Student doctor who needs to cop a feel so she can land. Sure, get in there. It is just hilarious. Thank you. Just, you know, so funny, but also just the social commentary is just so incredibly strong something that like I really related to and again for our listeners we always talk about the personal universal element because remember for Erin not everyone who reads this is going to be a mother for example I am not a mother and yet there was so much in this book that I could relate to in terms of women's pain not being taken seriously people being dismissive of women when they explaining their level of pain etc etc so tons here to unpack right so What I would like to start off with, Erin, is if you could take us through the process of writing this collection. Is it a case of, as an essayist, each essay that you write has to be placed in one of these magazines, in one of these publications, and has to be published first, and then you're able to put them together in an essay collection that you publish? Or does that work against you when you're putting together an essay collection? So can you just take us through the process from start to finish? Okay, well, it's different first a lot of people. There definitely is that element of this being essays that you can place in a magazine ahead of time. So to draw up attention for the book, that's definitely really important. I do know people who had published essays that then became part of a collection. In my case, they were all brand new, but then five of them were published in the maybe six to eight weeks that were leading up to the book's publication. So they were published before the book, just before the book intentionally as part of the promotional process, but they weren't actually published before I got my book deal or during the writing process, though other people do do that. So it's kind of, it really depends, I think, on what your publisher wants, what you're writing about. Is there a good fit where this might work, this might be timely, it might make sense to put it in a magazine right now. But typically, you'll see that noted in a book. So if you see this was previously published in, you know, X magazine by this, and this date and or a version of this was, that's not uncommon at all. Okay, great. So that's really interesting. Another thing then is, was this book written on proposal? Is it a case of you did a proposal, sent it to a publisher and was like, these are the kind of essays I'm going to cover? Or when you sell this kind of book, do you have to pre-write all the essays? Because for a literary agent to sell fiction, the book needs to be complete. But we've heard them say before that for memoir or for other bits of nonfiction, it doesn't have to be complete. So what was your experience with an essay collection? Yeah, it's very much that it was on proposals. So I had only written, I think, four essays when I sold my book, which was maybe roughly 10,000 words. And then I had an outline, I had a detailed outline. But what's interesting is if you looked at my outline at that point, what I sold and what we put in the stores, there's overlap, but it's not the same. My publishers were really great about pushing me to go a little farther and not, I'd I'd received advice from people that books about parenting and motherhood should lean into self-help a little bit because that's what sells and that's what moms want to read. They want help, like they want solutions because being a new mom is hard. And so I had tried to incorporate a bit of an element of that, but then it always came with this kind of caveat of like, but I'm not an expert. And I'd always be kind of qualifying it with like, but don't really listen to me. Like, you know, what do I know? I've got two kids. doesn't make me an expert. We all do things differently. And so when I sold my book, they said, we love your voice. We love this writing. We love the storytelling, the subject matter, what you want to say, but take out any self-help. Just write like your experience, write about motherhood, just kind of 
talk about what you want to talk about and don't be afraid to like push yourself a little. And they said, write everything. And if you later are uncomfortable with it, we take it out. I was kind of holding back a little bit, I think, but they saw the potential there. So they did buy it, but it is very different than what I proposed to them initially. And it was definitely not written at all. I was given a period of time to write it. I basically got an advance and then a due date. And it was like the biggest, you know, (laughs) deadline I'd had in quite some time. Yeah, that's the bonus of there's the pros and cons, right? You get the money so that you can write it, but then you're on a hell of a deadline and that's super, super stressful. So there's always pros and cons to that kind of thing. Two questions I have bouncing off of that. One, well, one's an observation. I really love that you kind of got this feedback, make it self-help. And so you use that feedback and then that's exactly what they don't want. I love that because I think for many writers who are frustrated and who aren't publishing, they're trying to fit into a box and hear, oh, this is what agents are looking for. This is what editors are looking for. But guys, you know, just write the best damn story you can. In this instance, it was Erin's personal experience. She's not claiming to be an expert. And honestly, I think I think these self-help things, women keep getting told, oh, if you don't breastfeed, you're a bad mother. If you don't do this, you're a bad mother. I think women are so sick to death, actually, of being told how they should mother that I think that was a really good call on on your publisher side. Number two, Erin, did you have an agent who facilitated a lot of this or did you go out with your outline directly to the publisher? Okay, so that's another story. That's a bit. I'll try to get the, the Coles notes. So the short version of that is... I was speaking to an agent. I had written a version of the book, which was literary essays, which is what it ended up being. I was speaking to an agent and that is the person who gave me the advice to maybe lean in a little more solution oriented. And in the process of kind of revising and thinking about this and what direction do I want to go? And is this something I want to do? Because I kind of loved it the way it was originally, but I really respect and continue to respect this agent and would have loved to work with them. That is the point where my publisher approached me. And so I had an unusual situation, but because I work as a freelance writer, I had an essay go viral in the States and it was tens of millions of views and it was being published everywhere and syndicated. And it was, and then I had a second one do similarly well, and I was publishing a lot of my own. And so my publisher actually contacted me and said, Hey, are you interested in an essay collection? And I went, Oh, I like, I'm trying to sell one right now. And they were honestly my dream publisher, but I had a bit of imposter syndrome where I didn't necessarily think of myself as literary. So I wasn't even thinking that I was going to pitch them. I thought like, no, I have to go a little bit less like literary small press and maybe something a bit more mainstream that might be where I fit in better, though I love reading literary fiction and literary nonfiction. So I ended up, when they approached me, I mean, it was mind blowing and I ended up signing with them directly. So the short answer is no, I don't have an agent, but that actually was part of the process because I was speaking with one and a great agent. And that's who gave me a bit of the advice that I kind of tried out. It didn't ultimately end up being what I did, but it was good advice, I think, for some people. I love that. There are so many different ways to skin a publishing deal, people, and it doesn't always have to be through agents and never underestimate the power of what one essay can do. You write one essay and it goes viral and look at the opportunities that arise because of that. Okay, so now I want to get some some other questions in. So let's discuss about how being specific is often what makes stories feel universal right? Like I said, there were personal universal elements in your essays that even though I'm not a mother, I could relate to. So how do people who are writing essays, how do they incorporate specificity in a way that makes a story feel universal? I think a lot of it is the more specific you are, the more real it is. And things are weird, right? Life is weird. So you're always going to be the person who thinks like this only happened to me. This is embarrassing. This was so awkward. I'm sure other people had other weird and embarrassing stuff, but not quite like that. And then what I hope is somebody will read my writing and go like, oh, wow, that really gross, weird thing happened to me too. Because I don't speak broadly. Like there's a part in the book where I had hyperemesis gravidarum. So I threw out my whole pregnancies like really violently. I was very ill. And so in the book, I talk about how with my second pregnancy, I was like heavily pregnant. I was like eight months pregnant. And at that point, every time I threw up, I would pee my pants because I was just, I couldn't do it. Like I was so sick. 
And so I think if you read a book and it says pregnancy is gross, pregnancy is hard, you go, yeah, okay. But then you read that and go, oh, okay, well that happened to me and, or something similarly awful happened to me. And it feels a lot more relatable, even though it might not be that specific thing. And then there's the other element of you talking about women's pain, not being maybe recognized or acknowledged. That's something where you saw something in my pregnancy that you recognized in your own life. And I love that because I was really shocked by the response to this book from people who don't have kids, who either don't want kids or thinking about having them or would like them and know they would like them, but don't have them yet. I thought this would be something that new and seasoned moms bought. And so, and it was cool. Dads have been reading it too. So there's even things like that that have opened up that I didn't write with them in mind, but I love that they're connecting with it. Like it feels like a really great bonus. Oh yeah, hundred percent. There's a part in the book where Erin writes, "Oh my God, please let me not poop while giving birth." She actually tells her husband he needs to stand at her head so he's seeing what she's seeing, and I killed myself laughing at that because my mother pooped when she gave birth to me, and I tell people I came into the world in shit from the get go, man. I've been in shit from the beginning, so that was another thing that really, really made me laugh as well. Okay, so let's also discuss so something. Carly and Cece often say on the podcast is people will pitch a memoir, for example, and Carly and Cece will go, this feels more like an essay. This feels more like an essay than an entire memoir. And I know that's not what people want to hear. They've spent years on this memoir, etc. So can we talk about that? How can you figure out like what is an article or what's an essay versus like a social media post or a longer sort of piece as a writer who lives in all of these worlds? It's really interesting sometimes to kind of sit and unpack like your thoughts and feelings about a subject and go like, how big is this going to get? Or has it been talked about before? Or who's the audience for it? And then kind of figure out where you're going to slot it or where you have the opportunity to slot it. Because obviously I can't write a book every time I have a good idea. That would be great. Um, I've gotten pretty good at figuring out what is an article. So I think a lot of the time, if it is something that you can kind of tackle in under a thousand words, even at a high level, but like to get a conversation going, or there's a reported element to it. So for example, if there's a question I want answered and I think I'm not the expert on this, this isn't just going to be commentary. I mean, I'm here to, to think things out and offer some critical thinking and some anecdotes and talk about motherhood, but I'm not an expert in a lot of subjects. So if there's an interview element for me, that's more of an article because I'm not interested at this point in my life in writing a nonfiction book with a research element. This is very much personal essay, creative nonfiction. So sometimes I go like, what answers this question best? Or is it is it a question at all? Is it just something I want to share? So really it's looking at, does this lend itself well to something where I'm going to interview an expert and pitch it to magazines? Is this something that I'm going to put up quickly on Instagram with some commentary so people feel less alone because they go like, oh, I did that ridiculous thing too, or that's happened to me? Or is it something that is a little more evergreen, which is what I tried to do with the book? If it's an evergreen topic that I think will always be something that moms care about, I slotted that into the book because no research can talk about it. It's does not time sensitive. It fits in nicely with the overall arc of what I'm trying to do, which is like kind of cover those like pregnancy to maybe first six or seven years of my children's lives. That said, without really talking about my children, because we're talking about motherhood and the woman's experience, the parent's experience. So I think it's kind of knowing the formats, the audience and what you want to do and what there's appetite for. Okay, so let's talk about your essay that went viral. So when something, when you write something like that, that clearly resonates with so many different people, you've tapped into something that, are you then tempted to take that and expand it into something bigger? Or is it a case of, wow, that resonated with people at that moment in time for that particular reason? It's not something that can be expanded? Because I feel like writers are always trying to find their audience. And if you're able to tap in to such a huge audience with one essay, what was the subject matter of that essay, if you if you can tell us a bit about that? The first one that went viral was called The Invisible Workload of Motherhood is Killing Me. And it was about when I was only working part-time, I was essentially a stay-at-home mom who was freelancing like evenings and weekends when my husband was home. He was commuting to work. So he was great when he was home, but he wasn't home a lot. So I had this huge like weight to carry in terms of the kids care and well-being and the household and we had just bought our first house and moved to the suburbs and so I basically wrote about that mental and emotional weight that a lot of parents carry and a lot of moms carry 
and how it can just be crushing. Like it can just be so overwhelming to be the decision maker and the person who is sleep deprived and the person who's in charge of like every little thing that the family does and every morsel of food that goes into your kids' mouths. And there's just so much, like it's endless, right? So that was the first one. The second one that kind of came shortly after that, that also did very well was called, I'm a good mom, but I suck at playing with my kids because I don't like pretending to be a horse. I don't love imaginary play. I was never good at being like, playing dollies with my kids or imaginary games I'd always be like oh of course I'm like the witch but like the witch has to make dinner so like maybe you guys are being like the witch and the wizard and I'm making dinner nearby I just would always find an excuse not to do it but I'm with my kids all the time I engage with them all the time I would bake with them play board games spend to read to them take them to the park I just really nothing felt more soul-sucking than like sitting on the ground with like pretending to be a lego man <laughs> and a lot of parents are afraid to admit that right because you get shamed so both of those topics ended up working their way into the book, but in a new format, like I kind of expanded upon them and they became maybe a little more anecdotal and they're definitely a bit longer and explored more in depth, but they weren't replicated. But I do talk about both of the subjects in the book because I still feel really strongly about both of them. Yeah, well, yeah, and they relate to to the broader themes of motherhood in the essay collection as well. Right, so can we talk about the balance of like showing versus telling when it comes to an essay? Because I think I suck at essays. I'm just going to put it out there. My poor publicist, every time my, I have a book coming out and they're like, can you write an essay? I'm like, could I not rather write you another full-length novel instead of an essay? And I think it's because my brain is now so much on the showing versus the telling, whereas the essay is a lot more telling, less showing. What What is that balance for you? What is your advice there for novelists who are trying to write essays? Well, it can really be either, I think, because if you're writing a reported piece that's more like falling more under journalism, it is that telling it is that you mean there might be like an anecdote in the lead, but you're reporting information factually and you're kind of sticking to the facts and you want it to flow well and you want to sound well and tell a story to some extent. But that is more of a a telling situation and you want to be as objective as possible unless you're writing an op-ed and are making it clear that your opinion's a part of this. Whereas because I write creative nonfiction and literary creative nonfiction and however else you want to categorize it, there actually is a lot of the show don't tell. And that's really important when we were going through the edits process. And so it's it's different than if it's being placed at the magazine. And I'm sure there's areas where like the lines blur and a different editor wants you to go one way or the other. But in the book, if you're going creative nonfiction, it still has that kind of story arc and that lean into showing, not telling, because they don't want you to tell them. They want you to really paint this picture. And it's like the essay we were just reading where I'm talking about that prenatal check and if I had just kind of laid that out factually, like this was an older man and he had like a young female medical intern with him and it was really painful when she did it, but it was okay. Like, that's not funny. It's not engaging. You're kind of like, why are you telling me this? But when you paint that story of like being in my head as I'm lying there going like, I feel like she's stabbing me from inside my vagina. It makes it a completely different story. And I think that's something that moms want to hear is these get inside the head of another mom and go like, oh my God, I'm not alone. Like it really is this ridiculous. Yeah. And what's interesting here is the layers of showing versus telling. So to do true showing, you would have had to dramatize the dialogue, right? It would have been he said, she said, it would have been dialogue tags, etc. But what we have here, so we don't have the dramatization of the dialogue, but we have the inner monologue. We're in your head with you. We have these thoughts as you like, oh my God, should I tell her to take off the ring or whatever the case may be is. So for our listeners, there are different levels of showing versus telling. If you want to see how to show really well without necessarily the dialogue, etc., please get Send Me Into the Woods Alone. We're linking to it on our bookshop.org affiliate page. It's an excellent essay collection. And like I say, not just for mothers or people who plan to be mothers or about to be mothers. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. So uh, yeah, go have a look. And Erin, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's really good to be here. I'm glad we did it. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup 
for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.